Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So in preparation for becoming a pastor, working through all that, I mean, I learned a lot of stuff. I learned a ton educationally, at school, you know, seminary, working through the books and material about what it means and what the Bible teaches. I learned a ton practically just working with some great pastors who would develop and disciple and just help me become a better human being, right? And hopefully a decent pastor, a good leader, like things you just gotta work through. And, and that was pretty great. And I learned a lot, but one thing I was never prepared for. I was never prepared for how one aspect of my job would be so challenging. And many people assume that, well, as a pastor or a preacher, right, the hardest thing about your job is probably preaching or teaching. And while that is a very time-consuming aspect of my vocation, it's, it's not that difficult. I mean, after a while, you get used to it, and when you enjoy something, which I actually do enjoy, when you enjoy this, it kind of takes the thing out of the big difficult, right? It's like, hey, I'm good. I definitely wasn't prepared for how hard it would be to carry other people. Going through and like just kind of carrying that on you and what to do with all of that. But there's a lot of professions that have to work through that and have to deal with that. And, and that's not really the hardest at, um, aspect of my job, although it's difficult. The hardest aspect of my job, if I were to be completely vulnerable and honest with everybody here this morning, don't tell anybody else, is helping people who grew up in the church, I mean, very religious people who perhaps do all the right things, realize that they don't know Jesus at all, that they are as lost as loss can be. And it breaks my heart. How do you help people understand that being a Jesus follower is far more than just keeping rules? It's far more than just wearing the right clothes. It's far more than just going to church when the doors are open or, or serving because nobody else will, so I might as well. H how do you help people understand that? And, and I know when I say that, it sounds super judgy. You're like, wow, that's, that's rough. But, but, but it's not meant to be because as a pastor, it's my job to shepherd it's my job to help people and help them work through, especially spiritual things and faith things. And, and how do you help people find Jesus when they don't even know they're lost? First, you have to convince them they're lost. When life's going good and they do the right things and they've, they've kept all the rules, how do you help them see that it's far more than that? It's nowhere easy as you may think it is. 
And I'm reminded through this story we're looking at today that this, in fact, is something that Jesus struggled to do as well. I mean, Jesus could change water into wine. He could heal the blind. He raised the dead. He walked on water. That is incredible, isn't it? He did all of these miracles, but he could not always reach the religious righteous who thought they had it all together and did all the right things and could say the right things and went to all the things. They were blind to their own spiritual condition. I mean, how do you help people who haven't had a lot of tragedy, who haven't walked away from everything? How do you help them understand Jesus offers something different, and being a Christian is something different. That is the entire point of this parable we're looking at today. You see, remember last week we started this, it's in Luke chapter 15, we started the parable of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, remember, is the, the one who asked his father, a man had two sons, he asked his father for the inheritance, basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me what you're going to give me before you die. Give it to me now, and I'm going to go do my own thing. So he cut himself off his family on purpose, went, partied it up, lived a great life, he thought, blew all his money, and then became so broke he couldn't even feed himself. He couldn't even satisfy his hunger. He devised a plan to go back home saying, look, my father's servants, the people who work for my dad have far more than I have. I'm just going to go back home, throw myself at his mercy, and I'm just going to work for my dad. And remember, as he was going home, as he was traveling, the father saw him in the distance, in the distance, ran to meet his son. You remember that? And sat down and said, tell me everything you've done wrong right now. No. Threw his arms around his son, embraced him, welcomed him back home, cut his son off before he could even offer to be a servant, say, come in. Gave him the finest robe, the finest clothes, the finest shoes, gave him jewelry after he blew everything. He already pawned everything, right? He blew it all and he gave him more and said, come in and threw him a party, an elaborate and expensive party. He received the full restoration and forgiveness from his dad. And the wayward son, some of us identify with, we're like, yup, I get that. That's my story. I've been through that. But remember, this was just one of the characters of the story. This is usually the focus point. This is usually where it stops and we just celebrate. But it's not the actual point. Remember, he says this, Luke 15, 11, to illustrate his point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had how many sons? Two. We talk about the first one because the second one is super uncomfortable, especially if you grew up in church, especially if you've been a Christian your whole life, especially if you cannot identify with the wayward son. And it's okay if you can't. Like we're not advising everybody to go out and lose everything to find Jesus. We're not asking you to do that. But the second one is really uncomfortable. You see, both sons are part of the story. 
the elder brother and his reaction to the father and his reaction to the son is the actual main conflict of the story. The prodigal son, the one who runs and ruins it all, he's just setting the story up. The main conflict, the main point is not about him. It's actually the elder brother, the one we're going to look at today. Because remember, the audience for this parable are the religious righteous, the Pharisees, the ones who know the Bible. They went to Sunday school. They have everything together. They read the quarterlies. They read the devotions. They even came to Wednesday night prayer meeting. They were them. They came to everything. Remember, this is what Jesus, this is what sets it up. Luke 15, 1 and 2 says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain. You ever complained at church? Remember, I know most of you. (laughs) This is you. The story's for you. That he was associating with such sinful people. Even eating with them. Jesus, you're not hanging out with us. You're spending your time with them. We pay your bills. They didn't actually pay Jesus' bills, but that's what they say to pastors. We pay for it. What about us? Why are you worried about them? And so then he launches, remember, to explain his ministry. He launches into three parables, three teaching opportunities for them to lean in. He tells them the story of the the shepherd who had 100 sheep. One sheep went off. He had 99 left, and so he went to go chase the one. Then we had the lady with the lost coin. She had 10 coins, lost one. She ripped her house apart to find the one. And in both instances, with the shepherd and the lady, they were joyful. They celebrated. And Jesus said, that's the same way with my father. That's the same way with heaven. They are excited when the lost are found. And then he goes into the parable of the prodigal son, which is the same type of story. The son is home. Let's celebrate But he is not done because the elder brother is the religious righteous, those who have it all together. And it's their reaction to grace and love. As we mentioned last week, Jesus gives us a broad overview of two ways people try to find happiness in this world and fulfillment. Some travel down a path of self-discovery. I'm just going to live how I want to live and I'm going to find happiness. Doesn't work out for them. Others try to find happiness and fulfillment by moral conformity or religious moralism. I'm going to do all the right things and I'm going to find happiness that way. When the wayward son returns home, the father throws the big party. The younger son's inside. He's celebrating. And now we turn to the elder brother. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. Because isn't that what a good son is supposed to do? Work. He's putting in his time. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's in the field working. And when he returned home, he heard the music and dancing in the house. How would you feel if you've been working all day and you come home just to find out someone's partying in the house and you don't seem to be invited? Oh, you'd be joyful about it? No lie. You'd be mad. Why ain't somebody tell me about the party? What's going on? How come I'm not in the party? Evidently, there's this party going on. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? He says, your brother is back, he was told. Your father has killed the fattened calf, 
We are celebrating because of his safe return. And listen, this is so important to see in this story. The servant understands what is happening. The servant is simply replaying what the father has said. This is the father's vision, right? The son comes home, the father embraces him. He shares his vision with his people, his workers. He's like, look, we're gonna have a party. Here's why we're gonna have a party. My son was lost, now he's found, it's time to celebrate. And the servant's like, well, of course you do that. I mean, that, that just makes sense. So they are excited about this. The servant catches the vision of the father. And so he explains, hey, look, here's what your father said. Here's what's going on. And the elder brother's like, well, fantastic. You saved me a great seat, right? No, says the older brother was angry. It wouldn't go in. Notice the bitterness. Notice the anger in this man's heart. Why would the father celebrate someone who blew everything? And now let's step back and remember that the elder brother would have known the heart of the father. This is important. He would have known the heart of the father. He would have watched his father cry because his son left. He would have watched his father pace around looking for his lost son. He would have seen the heartbreak in his dad. He would have seen the seat missing at the table where his son last, or his brother last sat. He would have seen his father praying for the son's return. He would have knew that his father was worried. His father was scared. He was around his father. He saw his father's emotions. He would have known this. And if you've had a wayward person in your family, you know what it does to everybody else in the family. Nobody just sits back and goes, not a big deal. Everybody's focused and consumed. So he knows how his father feels about this. But he never embraces what his father embraced. He never let his heart break for the things that his father's heart broke for. He never believed in the same things that the father believed in. He was orbiting just like the Pharisees. The Pharisees have been orbiting God They've been studying scriptures. They've been going to the temple. They've been around their entire life to the things of God, but they never truly embraced God. In fact, when the son of God physically shows up in front of them, they're angry and bitter. That's how we know they never allowed their heart to be transformed for the things of God. They knew all about them, but they didn't love the things God loved. And what's so interesting is the insider is now on the outside. The one who stayed is now refusing to take part in the activities. The insider is now the outsider. The outsider is now the insider. Verse 28 continues. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and, say that word with me, begged. What kind of father in a patriarchal society comes out and begs his son to do anything? The father takes the initiative and comes out to get the brother, just like the father took the initiative to run after the son. It's the same father with the same mercy and the same care and the same love and the same grace. And he comes to him, he says, come on. And this is a repeated effort, not a single request, a repeated effort to say, come into the party. 
come in. You, you can come in. You can eat. You can drink. You can celebrate. Like, come be a part of this thing. Don't miss out. He meets. <laughs> the Heavenly Father meets you whether you're religious, righteous person, or you're a wayward. It's the same Father coming out to welcome you in. But listen, anger and bitterness will stop you and prevent you from missing out on the celebration that God's doing. Because listen, is a party going on regardless? Sure is. Guess who's missing out? It's still happening. You can be a part of it or you can choose to be outside. Y'all ever chose to throw a temper tantrum before? Oh, just me? Yeah. Who does it help? Correct. So what he's doing, just upset. He's missing out. The party's still happening, folks. God is at work rescuing people from their sin. There is joy and celebration. It's happening regardless of if you're a part of it or not. But you choose. <laughs> the older brother, he has his reasons, just like we do. Here's what he says. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. He must be forgetting about his teenage years, isn't he? Unless he got that 100% right. That's pretty amazing. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a, fe a feast with my friends. I've been a slave, not a son. I've been a slave and you haven't thrown me a birthday party, no rewards, no celebrations. You've done nothing for me. I've never backtalked. I've never scoffed at you. I've taken out the trash when you asked and you didn't even give me a goat for prom. <laughs> nothing. You've done nothing for me. Folks, what are the chances this father has done nothing for his son? But you've done nothing, nothing for me. You never fed me. I never ate once at this house. Never. I've starved my whole life. Never ate. Not once. You've done nothing. But this is what it does to you. This is what bitterness, this is what anger, this is what the righteousness you think you've earned gets you. Never done anything for me. He is so envious that the father would treat someone who messed up so badly so good. And he thinks, he thinks, he doesn't actually want, but he thinks he wants justice and fairness. But grace is a different thing. He is frustrated that grace will wipe the slate clean for someone who has done terrible things. How can the father celebrate the sinner when he's been there the whole time? And before we glance over this, before we just wash over this, we have to seriously look at ourselves in the story, especially if you grew up in church, especially if you've orbited God your whole life and you've never strayed away. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard an elder brother reaction in churches from people who are so frustrated and they cannot believe that the church and the staff or the people would start rallying around to focus on outsiders rather than just sit in and celebrate insiders. What about us, they say? We've been here all these years. Uh-huh. You see, the brother is pointing to his moral conformity. 
He's pointing to how he got religion correct. He's pointing to his work saying, because of all that I've done, what's really going on is you, you owe me. You've never done anything and you owe me, God. You owe me, Father. See, the integrity of the Father is being called into question. He's missed it. Look at this offended spirit. He keeps going. Verse 30. He says, yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering all your money on prostitutes. This is for next week. How does he know what his brother's been doing? Hmm. Been squandering all your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fattened calf. He doesn't even call him his brother. He says, your son. I do this to my wife all the time. I'm like, your children have done this. Not mine would never, but yours have. You need to fix them. So he has been, he has cut his brother off. He's saying he's done all this stuff. He's dead to me. He's blown all your money. He's been with prostitutes. He's been, he's dead to me. I'm, I'm not even claiming him as part of my life. He goes and parties, spends all his money living it up and party and comes home to a what? A party. He's like, this is ridiculous. This man just parties his whole life, and you give him even more parties. Like, this isn't fair, so where's the justice? Where's the fairness? What needs to happen is that son of yours needs to be disowned, not honored. He needs to be rejected, not celebrated. And folks, this isn't. This isn't the first time in the Bible that we see a conflict happening between two brothers. You see, this story would echo in the ears of these Jewish leaders and bring to mind this story of two brothers who didn't get along at the very beginning of the Bible. Remember Cain and Abel? Where Cain is so jealous and envious that God would accept his sacrifice. And we know that this type of attitude, what he's reflecting, we know where it leads. They would have known where it led. It led to the first murder being, being um, on this earth. The first murder was Cain killing his brother because he was so angry about this acceptance. And so the son who's an outsider is now on the inside. The son who was the insider is now on the outside. Everything has been reversed. And the one who claims so much righteousness and so much good things is now being ridiculously disrespectful and dishonoring. Everything he said he wasn't, he is now being. Notice he has no compassion for other people's different walks of life. He has no compassion for what other people have gone through. And what's revealed in this story is that the elder brother is truly lost. He is just as lost to his father's love as his younger brother was. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. His reply is so gentle. Son, you've been right here. 
Everything I have is actually yours. The return of your brother does not, does not diminish your value. It does not diminish your standing. Everything I have is yours, son. The animals are already yours, son. What are the chances that the elder brother actually ever asked for anything? You think he actually asked for his goat and his dad said no? Chances are he's just aggravated. He's just being selfish. He's just pointing out to other people's failures, comparing himself to him. He's just looking for reasons to get mad. But the younger brother, the younger brother walked away because his desire to be in charge led him to be wayward. Now we have the elder brother who stayed by his son and his desire to be in charge is now severed his relationship with this father. They're both doing the same thing. It just looks differently. They're both rejecting the father, even by being a good boy. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, do you realize then what Jesus is teaching? Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. He says, this means you can rebel against God and be alienated Um, from him by either breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. You see, the elder brother, he wasn't interested in his father for his father's sake. He wasn't truly trying to make his dad happy because he loved him and cared about him. His anger showed what he's interested in is getting things from his father. He felt owed. I've done all this for you. Now you owe me something. So the father gives him a chance to see the world, to see his brother as he sees it. His father says, we had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost. But now he's found. It's as if a resurrection has taken place in this family. It's not just my son. He says, your brother, your family, your brother has come home. He's safe and secure. Rather than being bitter, rather than being angry, rather than being offended, rather than being stingy, rather than being compassionate-less, Rather than comparing yourselves to the other people and your brother especially, he says, see the world as I see it. Your brother, my son, is home. You see, if God has really transformed your life and changed your heart, you will then see the world as he sees the world. You will care for the things he cares for. And if you truly want intimacy with God, if you want to know him, if you want to love him, you will then celebrate the things that God celebrates and recalibrate your life around the things he says to recalibrate your life around. You're like, man, I want to do what God wants. I want to be a part of what he's doing in this world. But the older brother's heart was exposed. He just wanted his dad's stuff. He just wanted the things that benefit him and work for him. He thought by being good, he could put his father in debt. Just like some of you think by being good, God owes you this. 
Should have had a better life. I was always there. That shouldn't happen to me because I always, well, I've read my Bible every day, so things should be perfect. I never sinned like that guy. That means God owes me, to which Jesus would say, you've missed the gospel. You've missed grace. You're living in your own self-righteousness. And here's where the story ends. Jesus drops the mic. He walks away, leaving the religious leaders, leaving me and you to work through what happens next. What does the son do? Does he see the error in his way and his pride and self-righteousness and decide to walk into the party and be like, well, whether it's for me or for him, either way I get to eat some of this delicious beef I'm complaining about. Either way, I get to be a part of it. This is pretty great. Why am I missing out on it? Does he see the error in his ways and join the father in the celebration? Or does he reject the father and walk away and miss out on it all in his anger and bitterness? What's he to do? What would you do? The tragedy of the story is we actually know how it ends. The elder brother kills the father. The elder brother are the Pharisees. And when God came, Jesus Christ came, what did they do to him? They killed him. We know how the righteous religious respond. When their heart's not broke by the gospel, they kill instead. To which we go, well, I would never Folks, that's what happened. Just as Cain killed his brother, they spit on Jesus, they beat Jesus, they crucified him. When God came to us in human flesh, the religious righteous chose to kill rather than lean in and allow him to change their lives. So please do not ignore the warning as they did. They walked away. They ignored. They decided to take things in their own hand. They missed out on knowing God and experiencing God because of their own self-righteousness. They said, we don't need a savior. We got this. You see, the elder son was completely blind to the grace of God. He couldn't understand it, nor had he ever embraced it. What is very important to understand is that you and me, we are only saved by grace. All of us, whether it doesn't matter how good you are, you can't be loved any more than you're already loved by God. You are saved by grace just like, the, just like everybody else. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. But he was so concerned with his righteous works and perhaps you were obsessed with your righteous works and all that you've done and how good you've been and all the time you spent that you were owed something else to which you'd say, no, you've missed grace. You, you can't earn it. It's not about your works. It's about his mercy. Our salvation is rooted in the work of Jesus Christ, not yours. We're saved by grace through faith. And what it really comes down to is do you believe that God loves you more because of the good deeds you've done? Do you believe that you're earning favor with God because you do things for him by your works? 
Do you relate to God based on your performance? Is your relationship with God based on what you can get from him or what you want from him? And you see, folks, this is the one thing I'm trying to teach my kids, and I don't know if I'm doing a good job. So look, send me emails. You can send them to me, not Scott this time. Send them to me. I'm working on this. See, I love my kids with my absolute everything. And when it comes to following directions and it comes down to doing the right things, I don't want them to do the right thing because if they don't, they're going to get in trouble. I, I don't want them to follow directions because they can get stuff from me. Like, hey, if I'm good, you'll give me this. I, I don't want them to listen to their mom because if they don't, dad's going to come home and lay down martial law. And I will, just for the record. But I don't want that to be their motives. I, I, I want them to listen to their parents, their mom and their dad, especially their mom, because their mom loves them. And they love their mom. I want them to listen to me because I love them and I am for them. And that what I'm trying to teach them is to help them. I hope and pray that my relationship with my kids isn't based on fear of getting, not getting in trouble or fear of not getting what they want. I hope and pray that our relationship is based on love for each other. Isn't that what we want in our marriages, this, this love that the other person loves us? They don't want something from us. They want something for us. Isn't this what we want from our friends? Which is why our childhood friends are always our best friends because we had nothing and they still liked us. Then we get older and we try to figure out their motives. Everybody wants something. But when you're a kid, you had nothing and it, they always stick around, right? The childhood friends. But don't we want relationships based on love, a deep willingness to make the other person smile, to make them be happy and to bring them joy and fulfilled life? Like, isn't that we want from relationships? And, and I'm trying to give to my kids and trying to help them understand the gospel that you can't earn my love, kids. You have it already. You have as much love as I possibly can give you. You have absolutely all of it. I can't love you anymore, and is that going to be enough for you? I'm trying. But I ask, is God's love enough for you? Are you grateful for his love? The response by the father to the elder son, I need, the son needs to just ring in your ears and just be on repeat. He said, son, everything I have is already yours. There's nothing else to give you. You can't earn what's already been given to you. It's already yours. What are you working for? Here. Take it. It's already yours. What are you working for? Like, I've already given it to you. And folks, that's grace. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. He's already given it to you. It's already there. He's like, I'm not going to love you more. I love you as much as I can love you. I've given you it all. What are you working for? What are you trying to earn? What are you trying to build? You have my favor. You, here it is. I've given it person works of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. And if you can't understand that, then you've missed grace. You're trusting in your own self-righteousness, your own works. You're trusting in yourself to get your way to heaven. But folks, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you're not good enough. You can't do enough. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. Jesus Christ has already done it. And you just sit in it and rest in it and abide in it. 
And you're like, yeah, but, but surely all the good things, why were you doing them, folks? What was your motive? Can't trick God. Are you resting in his grace? You see, the elder brother rejects the love and the grace of God. And one of the clearest ways to know if someone has experienced the grace of God, which is our salvation, is yours and mine ability to then extend that grace to other people. Because you cannot extend what you haven't experienced yourself. You can't give what you don't have. And the reason why so many people can't extend grace to other people because they haven't rested in it and they're not experiencing it from Christ himself. So have you truly embraced the grace of God? I have a few questions for you and then we're done, but you can think through these. Elder brothers, they point to their superiority. They point to who they are and what they've done. Do you do this? Are you quick to point out someone else's sins and call them out? As if you're their Holy Spirit. As I've told you before, if I'm focused on me, I don't have time to focus on you. But if I'm focused on you, I'm not looking at who? Me. The elder brother wasn't looking at his relationship with his father. He was looking at his son, his brother. He was worried about him. Do you have an offended spirit? Are you always getting angry and bitter when things don't go to your way? Do you point to your job title, your resume, and explain how you should be treated differently because you are? That's an elder brother mentality. Do you get offended because you think you deserve or you're righteous or you're moral? You're superior than others. Do you have an offended spirit? Here's a big one. Do you lack the ability to forgive? And here's the thing about forgiveness. It does not include constantly bringing up the failures of other people. Forgiving people does not include bringing up the one time they did that one thing. That's not forgiveness. That's called holding a grudge. So if you constantly bring up that one time they messed up or that thing they did, guess what you're doing? Not forgiving. We can call it something else. That's not forgiveness. If you have an employee and you keep bringing up that thing they did in the past, you haven't forgiven. And please do not use business language as if it's more important than Jesus' language. Jesus is superior to your business skills and practices. Keller says this. He says, it's impossible to forgive someone if you feel you are superior to him or her. And that's elder brother. If you think you're better than them, you can't forgive them. It's a misunderstanding of grace. Is the reason why you can't forgive because in your heart you believe all the things you've done justify something different to be done to you? You see, what Jesus teaches us must shock us to the core. Because religious moralism, doing all the right things, trying to get ahead, trying to put God in your debt, or being the wayward son, they both lead to a broken relationship with the Father. When you embrace grace, you stop looking at your efforts and start looking at his beauty. You stop comparing yourself to other people and start comparing yourself to Jesus Christ. When things don't go your way, instead of bitterness and anger and frustration, you rejoice in God's work being done, saying, hey, it's not about me, but it's about you. So not my will, but your will be done. 
Do you realize that you need saving just like everybody else? And that pride and self-righteousness is closer to the heart of Satan than it is to anything else? Because, folks, Satan wasn't wayward. He was prideful. And that's what makes him him. You see, pride is the most accepted sin in our churches and the most dangerous of them all. And you can't extend grace if you haven't experienced it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us understand your grace and help us rest in it. Father, Jesus teaches us that we are to abide and rest in him. That your mercy and grace is the greatest fulfillment and satisfaction in this life. Father, help us see individually our attempts to earn your salvation. Help us, see our, help us see our efforts for what they truly are. And are we serving you because of our deep love for you? Are we serving to put you in our debt? Father, help us embrace grace the way you do, the way you see it. Father, we know that there are many here who've never truly accepted your grace and forgiveness. They're living through their own self-righteousness and living for themselves. But Father, help them see the invitation from Jesus. Help them discover the intimacy with you through the death and resurrection of Jesus that he's already paid for all of our sins. You have already offered us forgiveness. And it's just our job to accept it. Stop pointing to ourselves and start pointing to you. So Father, like John the Baptist, may we all say, Lord, you need to increase and we need to decrease. Heavenly Father, help us. Expose our sins. Expose where we are. Father, help us. Help us live in your grace and experiencing it, perhaps for the first time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.